Hello, everybody. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. I am Bobby the Awesome, and I am here with Mark Azole. How'd I do? Did great. Nailed Perfect. it. Welcome to both shows, Mark. I'm excited. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap between our you know projects. So I'm really excited to talk to you and, and share what I know. Awesome. Can you start us off by introducing yourself? Maybe the broad strokes, where you're from, what do you do? Yeah. So uh, my name is Mark Azulay. I'm a therapist in private practice in Boulder, Colorado. I'm in recovery. I've been sober for 10 years, maybe a little bit longer at this point. I've been saying 10 years for a while now. Um, so I was a you know, my recovery story, very quickly, I'm sure we'll go into more detail. Um, polydrug abuser used pretty much whatever I could put up my nose really hard for about three years, uh, overdosed, recovered, and then got into mental health and got into therapy. So I work mainly with men. Um, I work with entrepreneurs, CEOs, people that have recently been through divorce, and I kind of help men to wield power honorably and to emotionally mature, to kind of go from boys to men. Oh, I like that. Boys to men. I have, yeah, I have another quote that I stole from your website. So I can't wait to dig in a little bit more. So you got out of recovery and then just started studying to do this, or you got out of addiction. I said that way wrong. Yeah. For for the most part, I, so I went to college for computer science and that didn't work out for me at all. I was just coding in the basement of a building. It was dark. It was sad. It was just depressing. You know, at the same time, my high school girlfriend, which was my first girlfriend, broke up with me. We were trying to do long distance relationship that did not work. And I just got gutted. And for you and your listeners to know, before that, I didn't do drugs or anything at all. I was completely straight laced. I was a nerd. I was just like very sheltered. And after that breakup, one of my friends on my freshman floor saw that I was sad and offered me to smoke some weed and talk about it. And I don't blame him at all. I mean, I think he was just trying to connect and trying to be emotionally supportive. And, you know, as we talk more about men, a way that men connect a lot is through substances. So because we were high, it was an excuse to be emotional, to really share what was really going on. So he was actually very supportive of me. But the side effect is that I started getting into drugs. And I really spiraled out after that. I started doing whatever was available. You know, I've had experiences with cocaine, a lot of hallucinogens. The most uh, extreme drug I did was heroin, where I smoked it, never injected it. But it really went really fast, where I was just, again, using everything that I could find. It was incredibly self-destructive. I had really low self-esteem. And I flamed out in three years and it culminated in an overdose where the girl I was dating at that time, her name is Ashley. She was the RA actually for my, for my floor. So she had Narcan on her because they all had a med kit because they were the, you know, residential assistant. So she Narcaned me. I woke up in the hospital and after that I got into therapy as a client and therapy really changed my life. I worked with a wonderful uh, psychologist, Dr. Jeff Beyer at uh, Carnegie Mellon where, where I went to school. And I credit him and another mentor, Dr. Patricia Carpenter, for truly saving my life, for truly bringing me back from the brink. And after that, I decided to start to pursue therapy and start to want to give that to other people. But I was a client first. I was a client for a good three years before I started to pursue it. I have to say, it has to take a special person to go from a client in therapy to want to become a therapist. Like, I have my counselor. I have my therapist. Um, I'm really good friends with someone that got out of treatment. And that was the route he chose too. 
I couldn't do it. So I give you guys a lot of credit. It takes a special person. Yeah, I'm curious. What did you think your resistances would be to it? Why don't you want to do that type of work? Well, look at you spinning the script. Um, Because I'm a big mouth for starters, and I'm not a good listener. Like active listening is something that I literally work on all the time um, and being present. But also it's, I can't carry the weight of all that. I know I would not do well with that. And I'd much rather try to impact the masses with my big mouth and my recovery playgrounds and my dream. I'd, I'd feel too stunted. What what you guys do is majorly important. It just is not aligned with my personality or my dreams. Yeah, that makes sense. It is different roles. Yeah. I think we need ears and we need mouths, right? We need speakers and we need listeners. And I hear you. I mean, sometimes it definitely gets heavy. Sometimes it gets hard. You know, there's a lot of suffering out there, especially during the pandemic. I, I heard a lot of stories and it can... It got personal for me for a while where I went through it about depression that I haven't felt for a long time because there's just a lot of heaviness. But for me, it's very rewarding to see people grow and to work deeply with people one-on-one and to really have that deep impact. I mean, maybe we'll talk about business down the line. We get to entrepreneur part. I, I have ambitions to grow more and to you know have greater impact, but I do like doing that deep work with my set group of people. You know, I have about, I don't know, I'll call it 35 people under my care. And it's really, I don't know, it's really meaningful to know 35 people really uh, intimately, like really, really deeply. And some of them I've been working with for years, and it's been really inspiring to see them grow. And I kind of have taken on as part of my 12 step of giving back. I do it not through AA because I, I did a lot of AA and I'm kind of done with that now, but through my career, I give back in that way. So it's also part of my recovery journey. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And you also have a podcast, right? Is that part of how you view giving back as well? Yeah. So the podcast is called From the Ashes. And that is as I pivot more to being a big mouth, I think, you know, as I pivot more to to talking and trying to reach more people and trying to make the things that I know and that I've learned both through my education and through my experience a lot more accessible. I do. It was really painfully obvious to me what a privilege therapy is, and especially therapy at a high level. I have some biases. I think that uh, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, Medicaid providers or a lot of agencies don't hire the best people. The best people end up leaving and going to private practice and then charging an arm and a leg, which is what I do because it's, you know, you got to make a living out there. But then that means that people that really need it don't have access to therapeutic treatment and psychological ideas. So one of my ideas with the podcast is to get those ideas out to people in a very easy to digest free way that's a lot more accessible instead of having to pay for a session and you know show up at a certain time. That's hard if you're working two or three jobs. That's hard if you can't afford it, if you are a single parent. But if you have a podcast, you can listen to it asynchronously. You can listen to it when you're commuting to work. You can listen to it after your kids go to sleep. It's a lot more accessible. And I'm sure your, your podcast probably does similar things that people can kind of do it on their own time, which is, I think, critical for people as they're overtaxed and overstressed. A hundred percent. And me as a listener too. Um, you know, I was looking at Ayurveda not too long ago and Scientology and like there's these topics and you can find all different ends of the spectrum in doing the research. So um, I love that yours is, you know, helping people. It's not just curiosity. So that makes it beautiful. And uh, it, if you're not used to having a big mouth, like, even though I've always had one, 
I was nervous starting the show, like really nervous. It took me weeks before I, you know, like I thought about it, was ready and just was too scared of the microphone. Um, I don't know if you felt that way, but. Oh, yeah, I was for most of my childhood, I was painfully shy to the point where I couldn't buy something from a store. Yeah, I couldn't do like a scripted interaction of like, hey, here's the thing. You want change? How's your day? You know, have a good day. Like that would shut me down. So I've had to learn both through, I think, education. And I've done a lot of, you know, Toastmasters and classes and seminars how to talk because I was very, very just introverted and, and shy. So certainly, I mean, the podcast, the first couple of weeks, now it, it feels more natural, but the first couple of weeks, maybe first couple of months of being more realistic with myself, I was like, oh my God, I couldn't even listen to it. It would take me, you know, my, my show is similar to yours, it's about an hour in length. It would take me three hours to get up the courage to listen to a one hour show kind of thing. Yes. Uh, and I know I had to in order to improve and it was definitely had to work on that. Yeah, but luckily people care generally more about what the value is of the content instead of all the things that we get tied up in our head. So going back to your clients, you said you had 35 and you've also said um, men, it sounds like men is your like specialty or who you want to help. Like are all 35 of those clients men? Most of them. I have a handful of female clients, but most are men. Okay. And you like on, if you go to your website, um, it's a very interesting website, which I like, um, cause it gets your attention. It's not the same old, um, stuff. It doesn't look like a therapist website at all. <laughs> no, sure doesn't. And hopefully, um, yeah, I can't read my writing, but I want to talk for a minute about the psychotherapy. And then the quote I took was, um, it's better to name our demons so that they lose their dominion, I think is how it was said. And I really like that. So can you speak to those two things? Yeah. So the idea is still again first, uh, I market to men and a lot of that website, it looks like for those of you aren't looking at it right now, it looks like Dungeons and Dragons. It's, I use a lot of like dark fantasy art, a lot of bombastic language, the the image I'm trying to convey to you, mostly the guys that look at it is like, I can tolerate your intensity and I understand how much this can hurt. And I think, you know, maybe men in general, but I think in the recovery community too, this idea of facing your demons is something that people can relate to because the inner addict or the inner adulterer or the inner gambler or the inner, you know, liar can feel like a demon. It can feel like a really evil part of us. And there's something that I took from Buddhist thought, which is this idea of inviting your demons in for tea. So it's very different from Western thought, right? If you the Western thought in the mythology, you know, the knight gets on the horse, he's got the arm, he's got the cool sword, he goes and he just like kills them, kills the demons with aggression. But in, in Buddhist and Eastern thought, they invite them in for tea and they sit down with them and they talk to them, and they listen to them and they get to know them. And through that, they lose their power over you. And that is what I see therapy as being. And particularly, I think, my form of therapy, which I really focus on the shadow side of people. I come at it non-judgmentally, but I want to know when people are feeling insecure, when they're feeling jealous, when they want to hurt other people, when they want to run away from a situation, when they want to be vindictive. Because all that comes to childhood conditioning. It doesn't mean that they're an evil person or a bad person. It's a defensive mechanism. And by sitting down with that, by facing that demon, it can... 
you can gain more power back because you understand that it's a hurt thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. It's something that needs care and attention. And it's often trying to get a need met that was unmet through childhood, but it's doing it in a, in a destructive way. And I think that relates a lot with men because, again, men come to therapy usually after an incident, usually after like a big fight with their wife or a divorce or uh, an, an OD, like in my case. And a lot of men have a lot of shame around being like a monster on the inside. So I try to get to know that monster in a way that is full of compassion and curiosity rather than judgment and trying to kill it. Wow. Wow. That, that you explain that beautifully. And the more I learn, the more people I talk to, and since you've everything that you know about this field, we'll say happened in the last 10 years. So you're current, right? Like I've had counselors that have been doing it for 30 years or whatever. So it's not quite as relevant, but I, it keeps coming back to childhood, formative years, um, unfinished business, and then living life through our belief system that was formed that way. So can you go a little deeper on that? Cause I'm seeing this theme and I don't know if it'll cure addiction someday, but there's just so many it just keeps showing up so much. So did you learn about that in school? Like, where did that come from for you? Yeah. So in most of my education, of my formal education, I studied Buddhist psychotherapy, which talks a lot about conditioning. I use the word karma, right? But it's this idea of how we get imprinted on as a child. I Then after that, I studied psychoanalysis, which is really the Western version of that. Right, you go back to Freud and understanding childhood and understanding all these different stages. So I kind of blend those two in the way that I practice. But the way that I explain it to people is if you've ever fostered an animal or adopted something, a dog from the shelter, for instance, they got quirks. They got weird quirks, especially if they've been abused or they've been through a difficult situation. Right. I remember I had a um, my, my family had a greyhound that was rescued from the racetrack and he didn't live very long. He lived six years because he was hopped up full of steroids because he was a racer that we saved. But he was, for his whole life, was afraid of boots, was afraid of men's boots in particular. Because in the racing, and this is sad, uh, in the race, they were getting kicked by those, by kind of people wearing those boots. So when the dog would see those boots, he would run away and hide, right? And that's something that was conditioned into that dog. And even though, of course, my family never hurt the dog ever, there was no malicious intent. We would just be walking with boots out to the backyard to get firewood, right? We weren't even walking towards him. That conditioning would still go off. And I think there's a humility that we have to have as, as human creatures that we're still animals in a lot of ways. And that stuff is true for us too. So if there was stuff that happened in our childhood that trains our mind, that makes those automatic connections, it's going to act out as we get older, especially if we don't confront them, face them, and sit down with them. So if there is somebody in your life that reminds you of, of an abusive parent, or if there is a dynamic that, that you think is playing out that maybe you were bullied in school and you're like, oh my God, the bullying is happening again, or you were excluded. Oh my God, you know, I'm getting excluded again. Or there's like a need of, for loneliness that's being met through substance abuse, addiction, connection. As kids, we try to figure out ways to meet the needs, but we're without guidance, we're kind of dumb in some ways, right? So we, we, we do things that help us just then in the moment. But if, again, if they don't get kind of go to the past and reprogrammed, they continue to play out as we get older, which can keep us stuck in those behaviors. I, I, 
I know why I like you so much already. Like when you talk about blending like the Buddha, the Eastern and the Western and and I, I'm just so fascinated by this stuff lately because um, I can and I'm going into it with the lens of looking for the similarities and that makes it kind of kind of fun. Um, and it's interesting. That's kind of probably where I land in my mindset. So what what I'm experiencing and I don't know if you went through this like with therapy, if you're still going through this, because if you're 10 years in, I'm about half that. But the self-awareness to even know that you're like, do you need a therapist to point out um, that this stuff comes from the childhood? Like I get given exercises and I can't really remember before 10, but I also know that it's in there. I just don't know how to retrieve it. So like, how does someone start that journey? Is there things that people can do on their own? Do you need to have someone trained? I know I'm asking a lot of meaty parts of this question, but it just intrigues me so much, like how you would handle that or, or where you would start with, or what would you say? I think, you know, if the person again has the time, the space, the money, the resources, hiring a therapist is, you can't compare to that. I think having a professional and for a couple of reasons, one, this person doesn't have any other agenda. They're not connected to your life at all. So they can be more objective than anybody else in your life. That's the main reason. Two, that person is really consistent. So even if you have a really good friend and or a spiritual partner or someone that is really on the path, they're never going to be as consistent as somebody that you pay to show up every week. And this work, if you're serious about, takes a lot of consistency and a lot of difficulty, right? A therapist is trained not just to ask the good questions, which is you know certainly important, but really to hold and contain the emotions that come out when you answer those questions. And I always make a plug whenever someone asks me about therapy, the question to ask if you're looking for a therapist, the question to ask really is to ask if your therapist is in therapy or they've experienced therapy. You would be surprised of how many have not, and I would not work with them whatsoever because it's not about the education. Like I said, it's about the capacity to hold the emotions that come out of you when you answer. Because for you, Bobby, like those, those memories are in there from 10 on. And they might not be a, a visual memory. It might be a body memory, right? It might be an emotional memory. You know, you might be talking about something and all of a sudden feel really sad or really angry or really lonely. And a trained therapist is going to be able to look at that and get really curious about that and move towards it instead of moving away, which is so critical because in our culture, we move away from emotions all the time. You know, someone says, oh, I'm feeling sad. It's like, oh, they're there, get better. You know, or if someone is grieving, it's like, oh, it'll get better soon. We have this kind of like positivity thing, which moves people away from the intensity, but therapists will go into it with you. And, and by feeling through it, that's the way to deprogram it is to really feel through, understand, get to tread that ground. And then when you're in that situation, again, in your, in your real life, right outside the therapy room, you can choose to go a different direction. You can have a little bit more control and a little bit more awareness over, over those automatic reactions. Thank you. You mentioned spirituality in there before I shift to kind of the business realm, because I have questions around that too, but um, how important is spirituality to you, to your recovery, to your engagement with your clients? Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, to me, it's critical. So part of my higher power through 12 step, I personally don't connect to like a deity, like God in the form of being a separate entity. But I love back to kind of this Buddhist idea of 
God, if you want to call it that, being the interconnectedness of everything. I mean, God is everything. God is everywhere. I'm God. You're God, right? Everything is God. We're kind of all, because these are my beliefs. So please, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, from the way I believe, we are all God trying to play hide and seek with ourselves, trying to understand different parts of ourselves. And through connection, through relationship, both between humans and between nature and, and animals and, and everything, we're learning more about us, which is which is everything. And that's a Buddhist idea called Pratita Samupada, which is a Sanskrit word translates to interconnectedness, right? It's, it's the it's not just the individual pieces, it's actually the connections and the web that forms between everybody. That's the spirituality. And now the higher power that I really connected with is this idea that um, the present moment was the entrance is the gateway, right? Through Buddhism, meditation is the primary practice. And really that is just paying attention on purpose. People like to make it all flowery and have all these kinds of techniques. It's just like sit down, shut up and pay attention. It's really what, what meditation <laughs> is, you know, um, because it, it's there. God is there. Spirituality is there. Connection is there. Love is there. It's all there in the present moment. And if we can just kind of clear our mind a little bit, we can access it. And those things dovetailed quite nicely with my sobriety because a lot of the drugs that I took the main one being marijuana and probably hallucinogens second really made my mind incredibly chaotic and took me away from the present moment. You know, either having that kind of hazy smoke screen of marijuana smoke or the intensity of a psychedelic experience, it took me away from what was actually happening. So by using the present moment as a spiritual anchor, it helped inspire me to continue to be sober because I was like, you know what? I, I don't know anything really, right? Like I don't know what's going on. I don't know the spiritual machinations. I don't know the mythology or any of that, but I can at least try to pay attention to what's happening right now. That seemed very, very doable for me and very simple to be able to, to focus on in my spirituality. And in my work with clients, it's really interesting is, you know, you're probably familiar with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that pyramid that kind of goes up spiritual, um, uh, and transcendence is at the top. And as I work through my clients, it's really fascinating when they start bringing in spirituality. I don't, I mean, I mentioned it kind of in the beginning of our work and it's a little bit on my website. So they know that I'm open to it, but as they meet those, those physical, you know, mental, emotional, communal needs, then all of a sudden they start talking about like, Hey, is there more to life out there? You know, like, like it just starts to bubble up. And and I love those conversations when it gets there uh, with, with people. And it's something I certainly don't shy away with my, with my clients. I think some of the therapists do. I think they try to remain neutral. And, and in doing that, they close a lot of doors. I, I'm open and I disclose where I'm at and I'm curious where they're at. And it's an ongoing conversation. I think it's really critical to have a North Star. And I think it's something that is, quite frankly, really lacking in modern culture. I think that the church got dismantled for probably some good reasons, but it left us with a, a hole around connection to a higher power or connection to community or even a set of like values and morals. A lot of my generation, the millennials grew up incredibly cynical because we just rejected everything, but had nothing to replace it with. So I think having a spirituality or at the very least an ethical code is, is a really important for millennials to develop in particular, uh, but probably people in general should probably think about that. <laughs> think about what it means to be a good person, you know? So spirituality was not part of your life per se before getting into recovery. It was not. So I, I'm Jewish, but I was raised very culturally Jewish, not religiously Jewish. So I'm not culture. I mean, kosher. Um, I didn't really go to synagogue. I mean, I, I did a bar mitzvah, but I really just kind of memorized gibberish. Like, I don't even know what I said. I don't <laughs> understand or comprehend Hebrew, but I still, 
connect strongly with the Jewish culture. I like the food. I like the people. I get along with Jews pretty well. I have some of the mannerisms. But Buddhism was really the thing that socketed in. And it came at that time when I was in early recovery as something that, again, I'm a very practical person. So the fact that it has a practical component, which is the meditation practice, was somewhere where I could really start. I wasn't really ready. And I, I, in some ways, I'm still not really ready or really that interested in those really big questions of, you know, what's the meaning of life or where did we come from or what does it mean to be conscious? Some of that for me is kind of a little, a little too floaty. I just want to like have a thing that I can do every day. And in that develop kind of a spiritual practice that, that again, feels very tangible and worked just kind of worked with my personality type. And did it bubble up out of the 12 steps? Did I catch that in the way you were describing it? I, I did Buddhism before. I understood Buddhism before. I was actually exposed to it in a college class. Um, taught by that professor I talked about, Dr. Carpenter. She taught a class, Eastern Western Approaches to Mind and Body. And we had a uh, Zen monk that came in and taught us meditation and then ran a weekly meditation sit that I would do um, as part of my college, just you know, for free and for fun on Wednesday mornings. But then I went to 12 Step. So I was still an addict when I was learning about it. Then I went to 12 Step and they talked about the higher power and I linked the two. I was like, I really like this Buddhist thing. I like what they're saying at 12 step. How can I bridge the gap? And luckily I went to a 12 step that was, um, you know, connected to my university. So I think a little bit of a younger crowd that was open to that. I know there are some 12 steps. I went to, you know, in Pittsburgh, which is a very conservative city where it has to be God. Like it's a very Christian based thing. So I found a, a home group that was open to different definitions of the higher power. You know, I still had to have one, but it was a little bit more flexible around what that actually was. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't have any connection to spirituality before this round of recovery. Like I made it over two years, but because I hadn't figured out that piece, I feel like that was part of my relapse and part of, you know, what I had to do. And I'm, I'm really curious. So if, if there's somebody out there listening, right, that's whether they're in active addiction or maybe it's a family member or maybe it's somebody who's trying to recover and they're going 12 steps, Buddhism, like how do I connect those dots? How does understanding that help me? Like what's the point? Like, I, like why? If they ask like why or how, where do I start? What does that look like when I ask that? Yeah, I think 12-step is a great place to start. I would say for people that have never been to a 12-step meeting, definitely go to different groups because I found that different 12-step groups have different vibes, really different vibes. And you might go to the first one and be like, ah, this is not for me. You're like, who are these people? You might go to another one and be like, whoa, this is great. I finally found my tribe. So I would say definitely try like a good amount, three or four of them before you're ready to, uh, before you make your decision about 12-step. That being said, I think step work if you remove again i'm talking mainly maybe to my generation who just has a big aversion to the to the god piece and i think that's what gets a lot of people resistant to 12 step if you remove that though there's a lot of good stuff like the step work i think everyone can benefit from whether you're an addict or not but the idea of like making amends the idea of releasing resentments the idea of taking a personal inventory like all these things are really really good things to do so I would recommend going through the 12 steps, going like doing the work, and then you can decide if you want to keep going. So for me, when I moved away from Pittsburgh, I decided I didn't need 12 step anymore. I'd done you know, all the step work. I didn't want to be a lifer, but I got into more intensive therapy. I joined a therapy group. So I still do self-development. I've just moved it into a realm that fits more with my personality and, and who I am. 
But I think 12 steps is a great place to start. I think getting a therapist is a, is a good place to start. There's, and we were talking about a little bit online of just how accessible information is now. If you don't, if you're too, you know, uh, nervous to go somewhere in person, even just going online, listening to, I'm sure your podcast, listening to my podcast, uh, Googling recovery. I mean, there's so many people that are just so vocal about this right now, which is incredible. I mean, the anonymous part of Alcohol's Anonymous is starting to go away very, very quickly. And just listening to other people talk about it might be a very easy kind of on-ramp to doing some work if you're nervous about starting. You said a lot of really important things there. And I guess I want the word anonymous to go away. I want people, I feel personally like there's some therapy in being open, right? Because Otherwise, you're living a lie, which is probably part of your step four work. Anyway, I don't want to be a liar, but I lie because I, I have to only, you know, I wear a mask out in public. Um, and another point I just want to drive home because I say it all the time, but you just said it. Keep exploring, keep trying. Not everything works the same for everybody. So I loved how you talked about going to different meetings um, exploring East versus West. So all of those things are just really important. That, that bared repeating, because if somebody's listening, I don't want them thinking it's cookie cutter. And I, I think that's what's bubbling up too with some of these conversations. Recovery doesn't have to be just 12 step anymore. I'm a, I'm a believer. Everybody should at least go through it and experience it. Like I'm with you, um, but it's not the end all be all or the only option like it used to be. So I'm glad that you spoke to that. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, because the other thing I like about you, I got a big list growing here, Mark. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm flattered. Thank you. Is is the entrepreneur stuff. And as I got deeper and deeper into entrepreneurial adventure the last few years, the more I realized I'm I'm super grateful for my recovery practices because I I see a lot of similarities. Do you see any similarities between your recovery journey and your entrepreneurial journey? I think it's it's all related. I mean, especially as a solopreneur, which I imagine you are too, it's very personal. So all the issues that my business has and had were my own personal issues because it's just me. So it was an incredible mirror for emotional development, I think, in what I was doing. So things that I thought that I had kind of conquered in my personal life. So for instance, quick story, right? Uh, part of this, these conditioning things. As a kid, I was bullied into the ground right? Bullied, made fun of. I was an overweight Jewish kid with glasses growing up in rural Maryland. That being said, I came up with this kind of toxic belief that I had to get over in therapy, which was that there was something wrong with me, right? And that everyone knew what it was. So painful, extrapolate that causal addiction, et cetera, et cetera. However, I thought I got over that in therapy. But then when I started launching my business, I would launch the website and I'd be like, no one's clicking on my website. Like, is something wrong with my website and nobody's telling me? Oh, no one's clicking on my college day profile. Is something wrong with that and nobody's telling me? Oh, I, I did this networking meeting with this person and they're not calling me back. Is something wrong with me and nobody's telling me? That those old beliefs came up again when I was in that new arena. Mm-hmm. And now I have a more realistic view of business and I know what numbers are actually good and what are not. But I had to go through some of those growings and learnings again. And it was because I went through the recovery journey that I was able to identify some of those pitfalls and be like, oh, wait, no, this is not what's actually happening. This is just my old storyline coming back again. You know, it's that self-sabotaging story. It's not reality. 
Yes. Yes. And that's what you help people conquer, right? Is all that, those stories, I think is a good way to put it. Um, uh-huh. Is there any topic? Um, I know we're on time constraints. So I want to make sure if there's anything that you want to chat about that I haven't dug into or that you think is important um, in front of my audience, I would love for you to um, have the ability to freestyle. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot I can talk about. I think Again, I talk about men's mental health. I think that if there's men listening, getting a therapist doesn't mean you're a pussy. I just want to say that directly to them. And I think it is changing. But the reason, you know, you were saying, hey, you specialize in men. It's crazy that in my field, men is a specialty, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to go any more deep. It's not like men with addiction. It's not men with eating disorder. It's not men with depression. It's just men because so few of us actually access mental health services. It's, I think something like, I want to say it's like 15% of uh, clients are, are male. And I think like 5% of therapists are male. So it's a very female dominated uh, industry and female, you know, utilized industry, which is great. I think like more men and women should go. I'm not saying, you know, we should compete, but as men, we don't ask for help in the emotional realm. Like I said, it typically takes some kind of awful incident for most guys. It's divorce or addiction. Like I said, those are the kind of two big ones. Uh, so maybe even like death of a parent or death, death of a spouse is probably number three, but by the time, and I can tell you, I've worked with these guys. And the reason I've worked with some of these guys for four or five years is because they're coming to me at rock bottom. And now four or five years later, they're getting their foot uh, feedback under them and they're moving forward. And now we're doing that self-development work. I get so overjoyed when I have the guys that come to me, you know, a couple of years before the crisis, you know, like, Hey, something's up in my relationship. Can we talk about that for a minute? Or, Hey, I'm noticing these failures in my business. I want to talk to someone professional about that. Doing that preventive work is so critical and can save you just so much pain, just so much pain. If you just ask for help early, instead of waiting for the nuke to go off. And I think there's a stereotype that men are kind of emotionally simple or don't have a high emotional intelligence. And I don't think that's true at all. I think men are, as sensitive, but we suppress a lot of it. So if you're listening, you know, if something's going on in your relationship, you're not just like an ignorant brute, you know, you know, if something is cooking with addiction, where it feels a little bit off, you know, if you have a repetitive self-sabotaging pattern that's getting in your way. I think the real masculine thing to be a man is to confront that demon, you know, sit down face to face with it and deal with it now until it, you know, before it kind of destroys you. So I think that'd be something I'd like to plug out to your audience is to, for men in particular, because again, that's what I work with, to get into proactive treatment, preventative care, instead of waiting for their lives to detonate. And then it's way too, it's way harder to, to rebuild. That's pretty powerful. And they would all start with trying to clean house on all these noise and stories and beliefs is essentially what happens, right? That, because to me, addiction is escaping, right? Es- escaping the stories not being in that present moment, like you spoke about, you don't ever have to be in the present if you're, well, for me behind a, a slot machine or drunk or whatever, like you don't ever have to deal with any of that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's dissociation for a lot of people. It's amplification. It's, it's numbing. It's just the way that I, uh, I describe it to my guys, it's like hard shifting out of the present moment. Right. And every time you hard shift, right, it's going to hurt the engine a little bit. It's going to damage you because it's like a clunky transition. And 
I think by kind of being like, okay, if you're not, if you're using, like, what's so bad about being sober? Like, truly, truly, like, what is going on when you're not high, when you're not drunk, when you're not gambling, when you're not having sex, when you're not shopping, whatever it is, what is actually going on in your brain? And I think most people, men and women are aware that at the very least, it's painful and they want to get away from it. And I think that is should be the the warning bell, like the alarm siren to sit down and dig into that because that's not going to go anywhere. You know, like you said, the slot machines and drinking or weed or whatever it is, is it's only going to put a bandaid over the situation. But again, it, it gets worse. It compounds every every time. And, you know, when we talk about rock bottom, that's when the band doesn't work anymore. You know, when it does catch up with with us and you had yours, I had mine and, and it's it's brutal. So my hope is that people can get into treatment before they have to get to that rock bottom experience. You keep mentioning weed. So I'm going to ask you about this too. Mm -hmm. Because again, I have my opinion. So I'm curious about what yours is. All this legalization of pot. um, I don't want to put any ideas in your head. So how do you feel about all of the the legalization? Is it safe? Like what's your stance on that? Yeah. So this is a complicated topic. Because, you know, in Colorado, we were the first state to legalize. So it's something that I see a lot of and I, and I work a lot with. And I think, see, how do I frame this? This is, a, this is a good question. Because my personal views and my kind of political views, I think, intersect at this and they kind of conflict. So from a political standpoint, I'm kind of a libertarian type individual where I think that things should be legal. I think they should be regulated. I think that the government shouldn't be involved in commerce too much. That it should be, hey, you have the choice to do what you want to do. I have a choice to do what I want to do. As long as we don't hurt each other, it's all good. The government should intervene when people are hurting each other and when, you know, the boundaries are getting crossed. But if you want to smoke weed every day, that's fine. You know, I'm not making that choice, but I don't have the right to make to let you tell you how to make that choice. Right. I think that's from a political standpoint where I stand with it. However, from a addiction standpoint or what I see as a professional is I think I think it's good and bad. I think the the good, and this is a big good because it's what it saved me, is that drug dealers aren't selling weed, at least in Colorado. So the reason I did more drugs is because the guy I was buying weed from illegally also had other drugs in stock. Mm-hmm. So when I would meet with him, you know, I'd buy weed for a couple of years and he'd be like, oh, hey, I got some cocaine. Like, you want to try some cocaine? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, you want to try some acid? Yeah, sure. You want to try some mushrooms? For sure. You know, Xanax? Absolutely. I had access. It was truly a gateway drug in that way because it, it tapped me into the like illegal market. So I think having a legal market for weed is actually very powerful in that because you just go to the dispensary, you can just get weed. You can't get anything else. You don't have access to anything else. It keeps that access a little bit harder to get. And it is regulated, so everything is tested. There's that's not going to be you know spliced with anything. It's not going to be you know powdered with anything. I was buying weed from the you know alleys of Pittsburgh, and it's like God knows what was in some of that. And, and especially, I was doing a lot of ecstasy. It's like God knows what that was, right? So having like safety from that standpoint, I think is really important. I think the downside of it is that, especially in Colorado, it's way more potent than the weed that I smoked and and you smoked. If you did, if you did smoke weed. Um, it's you know, people that are trying to ramp up the THC values as high as possible and are doing things like dabs or resins, which is not, for me, that's not weed anymore. That's like a, that's a processed drug that has extremely high THC quantity. And I think it does make it in some ways a little more accessible for younger kids to have. And there is an overwhelming body of research that shows that marijuana use before the age of, it keeps going up, but let's say 24, 25 
significantly impacts the brain. It takes years to undo it. It's, it, it is undoable, but it takes years to undo it. I think especially for the men listening, something that I didn't know but definitely affected me is that smoking marijuana destroys testosterone. So my testosterone value was a third of what it should have been when I was smoking weed every day, which definitely caused some developmental issues in me um, that, I, again, I've, I've since reversed, but it was something that I just wasn't aware of at the time. So there is some significant downsides for it being available. I, I think the thing that if there's anything that I'm outraged about the most it's about the doctors. It's the doctors that I think are jumping on the train and saying, oh, weed is a cure for anxiety. It's a cure for eating disorders. It's a cure for um, you know, chronic pain. And I think it's beneficial for some things. Like it seems like for cluster migraines, it actually is very effective. But for a lot of other things, I think it's not a cure. I think it's just another band-aid. It's just getting high, <laughs> you know? Like you can get high and not feel anxious, but then just what you were saying, like the things that are making you anxious are still there. It's not, you're not really working on the anxiety. You're just not feeling anxious anymore. And I think that's a really key distinction. And I think those doctors that, you know, quite frankly, are probably making a lot of money by endorsing marijuana are not spreading the the, the complete message. And for somebody who already has addictive tendencies, having a doctor say like, this is medicine and this is healing and this is okay, is going to just push them over that edge to enabling them to use it more than maybe they should. Yeah, I feel the same way that it's it's like a blank check. And I I notice as an outsider a lot of different people in my life that are using it and their behaviors are changing compared to when they weren't using it. So that's why I was kind of curious um and not for the best either, you know, if it's the kid it's grades down, if it's you know, the adult it's mood swings, if it's the 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 guy who actually did talk about their feelings, it's all that gets shut off now. It's, it's really wild. That's, and again, that's my perspective. Um, so that's why I was curious what you thought about it. I forgot about the Colorado piece though. Yeah. I, I, I think weed is at least for me and for some people I work with, I think it's a very like insidious is the word I use drug where if you're a chronic weed user, I'll say for me, when I was a chronic weed user and a lot of chronic weed users say, say the same thing, they say, Oh, I don't even feel it anymore. Like, I don't even get high anymore. And that's scary. I didn't realize that to the time, but it means that I was always high, right? If I don't feel a difference, it means that my brain actually changed. So in some ways, I was always high. Mm. And it's something that I have not been able to see many people. There are some exceptions, of course, but many people do casually. It seems like it very quickly kind of creeps in and becomes a daily habit in most users where it's very hard to moderate. And even though the effects are can be slight, they are significant. And I think they really do delay development. So a lot of those things that I think the older generation, again, that I balked at when I was younger, this idea of like no motivation and you just want to sit on the couch all day and you're just a dreamer, not a doer. Like that's true. I mean, I gotta, I gotta say now, like, like that is true. And I think marijuana does create that. And it's not, it's not like a creative thing. It's not a thing that will make you smarter or more creative or, um, let you relax, which is things that I thought it was. It, it it can very much be a prison, but it's a prison that has like very soft walls and very warm blankets and is very comfortable in that prison. So it doesn't feel quite like a jail, but, but it is, it is. You're really good at the, the metaphors and the analogies. Like you used one about the car, which is good for the men and um, different explanations. So any final thoughts before we wrap it up? 
No, this was this is a great po- podcast. I mean, I think for those listening out there, like I just want to echo kind of what you were saying, Bobby. Is there's many roads to recovery. I'm sharing a little bit of mine. I hope that if you are feeling something and feeling inspired to go out there and, and ask for help and seek um, seek some treatment. If you want to know more about me, you can check out my website. It's uh, mark-azulay.com. That's M-A-R-C-A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y. Everything's on there. Podcast's on there. Uh, practice's on there. All that stuff is there. But yeah, it was it was great to talk to you. And I appreciate coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. And um, yeah, we have all your social links and all that stuff. So we'll make sure that that gets out there as we, as we publish and go live with this, but um, I really appreciate your time today, Mark and your perspective. Cool. And you'll be on my show in the, in the coming months. So we'll, we'll do a trade. Oh yeah. Well, and I'm working really hard on that book now that you gave me the deadline. There you go. <laughs> I mean, really hard. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks.